Good to see you today, and uh, welcome to our sermon series, Hidden Christmas. If you're a guest with us this morning, we say welcome home. And if you're joining us live stream, we're glad to have you as well. Someone was telling me about their son, the early service, who watches all the way from Connecticut. Craig, Craig, we're glad to have you with us this morning too. So Hidden Christmas, today we're going to continue to delve into the roots of Christmas, not always recognized in our culture today, and we're going to start off with Matthew's genealogy. Now I'm going to read some of the verses from the genealogy, not all of them, selected verses. Most of these have to do with the women who are in Christ's genealogy, calling this the mothers of Jesus. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So there you go. Matthew starts off his gospel of the life of Jesus, not with the more well-known events of Christmas, not with the baby in the manger, not with the wise men, not with the angelic pronunciations, but with a genealogy. And let's all be honest. When we're reading, we want to skip on down and get to the good parts. We want to get to some action. But we ought not to do that. There's some lessons to be found here about Christmas and the gospel in general right here in the genealogy, and Matthew is rooting Christ in history. What he's telling us is not just about a birth, but about a coming, a coming, the coming of the Messiah. And just like any good author, God, who's the ultimate author of the Bible, the Scriptures, knows how to foreshadow the events that are to come with his protagonist. So that is certainly happening here. And what I want to do this morning is draw out four lessons about Christmas and the gospel from the genealogy. Let's start with number one, that the gospel is good news, not just good advice. The gospel is good news, not just good advice. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. This is really, this has to do with what the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't start off once upon a time. What kind of stories start off once upon a time? Fictional stories, fables, Aesop's fables. Once upon a time, Beauty and the Beast. Once upon a time, Sleeping Beauty. Once upon a time, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. Right? Once upon a time means these are things that didn't happen and we're pretty sure they never happened. But there's a good moral here. There's a moral to Aesop's fables. You might be able to apply that to how we live our lives. It's good advice for life. Not so with how... Matthew is positioning gospel, he's positioning it as history, rooting it in history, genealogy. It's not, this is not a moral for life, although the gospel has implications for how we live, but this is history, something for us to respond to. Not something for us to do, but something for us to respond to. So let's say the kingdom of Fort Pierce was attacking the kingdom of Vero Beach. All right? They're sending an army. What do we need when we hear that news, we need an advisor. We need a military advisor. And he's going to come and say, all right, Vero Beach, you need to put your earthworks over here. And you need to get your sharpshooters out there. You need to align your, your tanks. Yeah, Vero Beach has tanks. So you want to align your tanks down here because Fort Pierce is coming. 
But then let's say another king intercepts the army of the kingdom of Fort Pierce and defeats them in battle. So what do we need now? We don't need an advisor. We don't need advice. We need a messenger who can come and tell us, okay, you can stop fleeing. You can stop making those preparations. You can stop working to save yourself because someone else has already saved you. We need a messenger. Well, the word for messenger in the Bible is angelos, from what we, which we get the word angel. And who did God send? He sent the angels, not with advice, but with good tidings, with news, with the gospel, which means the good news. Not to tell them what to do, but to tell them what had already been done, that the Son of God had been born. He had broken into our world, and he's on a mission. Now, granted, Christmas is just about the beginning of the story, but it's a story of redemption and salvation about what God is doing for us. So Christ is going to live his life, and he's going to die, and he's going to be resurrected and have victory over the graves. There are implications there for us. The Christmas story is about the longer, broader, bigger story of our salvation, not by what we do, right? Let's just remember that. It's by grace. It's what God is doing. I spoke of foreshadowing. You know, what Christ was going to do is kind of foreshadowed right here at the beginning, in the beginning of the birth. Where should we be in relation to God because we have sinned against him? Outsiders, out in the dark, out in the cold, separated from God by our sin. Where is the baby born? I mean, he's not, not in the end, right? He's out there in the feed trough, in the stable, in the darkness, in the cold, separated from God, on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? All of that that should have come upon us comes upon him so that we, through his grace, could come into the light and into the warmth and into the family. So we remember, it's not about what we do. None of, none of what we do contributes to our salvation. It's all about God coming into our world, the King, to save us, coming on our behalf. All right. So the gospel, it's not just good advice. Again, there are implications for how we are to live our lives, and that's in the Bible. And if what Matthew wrote is true, and if it's historical, then all of that makes sense. If it's not true, none of it makes sense. So it has to be true. Good news, not just good advice. Number two, lesson number two. Lessons for Christmas and the gospel based on the genealogy. Lesson number two. The gospel story changes how we read other stories. What does that mean? The gospel story changes how we read other stories. Acts 17, 23, the apostle Paul is preaching, this God whom you worship without knowing. Now let's talk about those once upon a time stories for a minute. Let's just think about that. For a second fictional stories fables they have morals to them you know we we like those we like those stories and we we really can't get enough of those kinds of stories and they're very popular now in marvel cinematic universe you know all of those kinds of stories with the superheroes people gravitate to those there's something within us that resonate with the themes and beauty and the beast and sleeping beauty and king arthur the round table and peter pan all of those kinds of stories lord of the let me ask you a quiz. All right, I gave you a little heads up here. Let me give you four letters, and you tell me if you're familiar with fantasy fiction, what do these letters mean? L O T R. Lord of the Rings. I gave it away to you. I was just going to get ahead of myself. L O T R. Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. 
Okay, very popular. Many people have read those novels and those books, and The Hobbit and the rest of them. Back when Peter Jackson, the director, the news got out that he was going to be making those books into movies, there were a slew of articles by literary critics and cultural elites about Tolkien's books, about the Lord of the Rings, and many of them were highly critical. I'm going to give you one example. In the New Yorker, in the New Yorker, Anthony Lane was their literary critic, and he wrote this about Tolkien's novel. Quote, it's a book that bristles with bravado, and yet to give into it, to cave into it, to really enjoy it, as most of us did on a first reading, betrays a reluctance to face the finer shades of life that verges on the cowardly. End quote. Now, what's he talking about? Why, why is he saying this? He and other critics like him are saying, when you read Lord of the Rings and you've got good and evil, right? and, and there's this story arc where ultimately good triumphs over evil and there's a happy ending and people living happily ever after. He said, while that appeals to us, it's very cowardly to give in to that and to enjoy that because that's not what real life is like. It's not good and evil. You've got all kinds of shades in between the black and the white and the gray and mixed motives and feet of clay. And life doesn't end with a happy ending. So he says, these stories and, and fables like them, they're not true. We shouldn't give in to them by enjoying them so much. I understand what he's saying. From a, per, from a certain perspective, from a certain point of view, I, you know, if I believe like he, he did, I might agree with him on that. But here's the thing. Hollywood keeps cranking them out. And people keep consuming them. And we keep reading them and enjoying them. And why is that? Maybe it's because. And when you think about this, when you read these stories again to your kids or your grandkids and kind of relive them vicariously through their eyes or remember how we felt when we read them, there's something in us that wants them to be true, right? That thinks they ought to be true. It ought to be true. It ought to be true that evil does not triumph. It ought to be true that we're not separated from the people that we love. It ought to be true that, that death does not have the final word in our lives. We want to be able to live long enough or live forever and, and not grow up and enjoy the fellowship of our loved ones and have victory over death and fly and communicate with other kinds of beings. How we wish that were true. How our kids may wish, I wish I was Superman, or I wish I had those powers, and I wish I could do that. Well, maybe it's because, maybe that resonates with us because God has put that in our hearts. We know that's the way it ought to be. And somewhere in the back of our minds, or at least in our hearts, we hope that's the way it will be. The danger is, in approaching the Christmas story, the Christmas account, as if it's just another one of those stories or just another one of those fables. It's not. And that's not the way Matthew presents it. Listen to the way, the way Tim Keller puts it. He writes, Jesus Christ is not one more lovely story pointing to these underlying realities. Jesus is the underlying reality to which all these other stories It resonates with us because ultimately in God's economy, it is true 
if what Matthew writes is true and we believe it is, Jesus has come. There is an evil presence, almost like an evil sorcerer who has cast a spell, so to speak, over the human race who does live in deception. There is a prince who's broken in, who's going to break that spell and has ultimate victory of good over evil and conquers the grave. All of that is true. So enjoy your fables and your fairy tales, not because we're deceived that they are true, but because it's right that that resonates with our hearts. Ultimately, through Christ, they are pointing to a reality. So it can change the way we read other stories. Lesson number three. The gospel turns the world's values upside down. We see this in the genealogies. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 2.11, So now Jesus and the ones that he makes holy, that's us, have the same Father, so that that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. In ancient times, a genealogy like the one in Matthew's gospel was like a resume. So in our individualistic society, we have very individualistic resumes. I earned these degrees, I've made these accomplishments here, I'm recommending myself with my resume. Back in those times, they could do that through a genealogy. And people, just like they tinker with their resumes today, they tinker with their genealogies. We know Herod the Great eliminated some of the people in his genealogical record. He did not want to be associated with them. After the first service, H.T. was telling me Hitler did the same thing. Hitler had some Jewish relations, and he, he said he wiped out an entire village. I mean, destroyed them because he did not want those secrets to come out, tinkered with his genealogy to make themselves look better. Well, what's, what's odd is that Matthew seems to be doing the very opposite. He's not tinkering with Jesus' genealogy. In fact, he's including things that are some of the most sordid, ugly, and embarrassing events in Jesus the Messiah's history. Now, let me give you an example. Number one, there are five women included in this genealogy. Not a big deal today, but back in ancient times, in that patriarchal society, it would have been rare to find even one woman included in a genealogy like this. This genealogy has five. The women who are included, most of them are not even Israelite Jewish women. You have two Canaanites and a Moabitess in there. And consider who they are and what they represent. Just give you a couple examples. I don't have the verses for these, but I'm referring back to the verses that uh, I read at the beginning. Matthew 1.3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Okay, so if you know your Israelite history here, Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. She disguised herself as a prostitute and tricked Judah, her father-in-law, into having sexual relations with her so that they produced Perez and Sarah, these two sons, who were in the genealogical ancestry of Jesus the Messiah. And if you know the rest of the story, she was more righteous than Judah was in that whole process. You have Matthew 1.5, Salmon, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab's a Canaanite, and she's a prostitute. And yet she's one of the mothers of Jesus the Messiah. Matthew 1.6, we get to King David. Great. Finally get some royalty, someone you can be proud of in your genealogical record, except for the way Matthew writes it, King David, who's the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, even if you don't know this story, and probably most of you do, but even if you didn't know it, you might think, that's odd. Why did he say whose mother was Uriah's wife? Why didn't he just say her name? The other women's names are in here. You know, her name was Bathsheba. 
Well, the reason he didn't put her name is not because it was a slam on Bathsheba, it's a slam on David. He is, it seems like, purposefully drawing our attention to how Bathsheba came to be in Jesus' ancestral line. Of course, many of you know, David, before he became king, he was, uh, he was out in the wilderness being pursued by King Saul, and a group of men came out to him there, his, kind of his band of brothers. They were called David's mighty men, and they surrounded him, and they were his companions and his protectors, and one of those men was Uriah, one of David's mighty men. In fact, David owed his life to Uriah. Years later, David becomes king, and after he's king, he wants Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. He takes Uriah's wife. He arranges for Uriah to be killed in battle. Uriah, uh, David and Bathsheba have children. One of those sons is Solomon that Matthew refers to. There's Solomon, whose mother was Uriah's wife. What is going on here? Why are these episodes included, and why are they so pointed about these embarrassing episodes? There may be many reasons, but it seems like one of them is this. Remember the point is? These genealogies help us to see how the gospel turns the world's values upside down. What does the world value? Well, prestige, honor, purity, holiness. There's a concept of holiness back then. If you were, you were holy and you rubbed up against the unclean or the unholy, then you became unclean. So you kind of wanted to separate yourself from that. That's all turned upside down by Jesus. Jesus comes. He's the holy one. And it's almost as if when we rub up against Jesus, his holiness is imparted to us. He makes us holy. And so we're reminded here in the genealogy that when it comes to the family of God and the kingdom of God and the values of God, it's not about your pedigree, how holy we are, how good we have been. In fact, when it comes to salvation, it doesn't matter in this sense. It doesn't matter what you've done. You may have killed people. We've got adulterers and adulteresses, and we have liars here, and we have killers here, we have prostitutes here. And, and it's not about prestige and power and honor. You've got David, and he's the king. He's not an outsider. He's an insider. He's not a Gentile. He's a Jew. He's not poor. He's royal. And yet, he is on the same level. He's sitting down before the cross at the same level with a prostitute, adulterers. In fact, he's done worse than any of the rest of them have done. It's all about the grace of God, not what we've accomplished, not what we've done, but about God's grace. And what did we start with? The Hebrew writer who says, and Jesus is not ashamed. He's not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters, not ashamed of you or me. So all of that, all of that turned upside down. And the King James, the old King James Bible, these reads, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat. Boring begats, but even right here in the begats, they're dripping with the grace of God. We believe this good news. We repent. We're baptized into Christ, and we receive his grace, the forgiveness. It covers our sins like the water of the ocean covers the floor of the ocean. It covers our sins. We all stand before God only because of his grace, every one of us. And then finally, there's one more here. God may take his time 
the fourth lesson. God may take his time, but he always keeps his word. He, may, he takes his time, but he keeps his word. Even if everyone else is a liar, Paul writes, God is true. So it took generations to fulfill God's messianic promise. 14, remember, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. It says that three times. The promise made to Abraham through you and your offspring will all the nations of the earth be blessed. That was made hundreds of years and thousands of years before it actually came true. In fact, you could go back further to the Garden of Eden where God says to the woman, your seed will come and bruise the serpent's head. Millennia before this was fulfilled. For, for the 400-year period immediately preceding the coming of the Messiah, there, not only was there no Messiah, there was no prophet. There was no word from God for a 400-year period of silence. Certainly there were people who were thinking, God's forgotten. God must have forgotten his promise. So we can't judge God by our calendars. Uh, he's got his own timetable. But one thing we do remember here is that God always keeps his word. Think of, uh, think of Joseph sold into slavery by his brother, spending the prime of his life, his very best years, in prison, year after year after year. When God had given him visions and dreams of what his life was going to be like, he must have been thinking, God must have forgotten all of that. But he hadn't. In the end, God worked it out. Think of the promises that God has made to us today in our covenant to the people of God. Promises of forgiveness, promises of redemption, promises of resurrection, promises of a new heaven and a new earth, promises that in the end God's going to work things out. You know, God's able to take all of that family dysfunction, all of that failure, all of the, the drama, the brokenness, the grief, that these folks went through in this genealogy and that we go through in our lives, he's able to take all of that, weave it together to accomplish his will and his purpose, which is always in your best interest and in my best interest. God's going to keep his promises. He always does. Don't judge God. Don't give up on God because a certain amount of time has gone by. I know this time of year, holidays full of joy, singing, gladness, also times of grief, and stress, and sadness. Today is December 8th, three years ago. It's the anniversary of our granddaughter's death. She was born, lived 18 days, and then she died. Is that fair? No. You have your own version of that. Somebody's died, several people. Children, grandchildren, spouse, brother, sister, friends loved ones separated by death. Is that fair? No. Do I blame God? No. You know why? God's the only one who's doing anything about it. God's the only one who's done anything about death. He sent his son to die and rise again. So we look back on Jesus rooted in history because we know it's an historical fact that he was born, died, and rose again. We look forward to the future with optimism, not a blind optimism, but with genuine hope. Because he rose again, we will rise again. God's going to keep his promise. And we'll be united with our loved ones. And the Bible says, and so we will be with them forever. 
Our Father in heaven, we thank you, God, for these reminders today. We thank you for what's tucked away and hidden, this hidden Christmas, hidden in these genealogies that we don't always, always think about. Sometimes we're tempted to skip over, but there are nuggets of truth there, Lord, and people living difficult, hard lives, short lives, just like ours. But you saw them, and you were working in them, through them, and with them to accomplish our best and your purposes. And you're doing that same thing for everybody in this room today. Thank you for being such a good and loving God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.